Welcome everybody to the Kim Barra Show. I am your host, Kim Barra, and on today's episode, we have Mr. Martin Moore, your CEO expert in leadership. Now, Marty has been someone who's gone through and led tons of companies into billions of dollars and learned a lot of great leadership insights as well. And we managed to get him on and snag him for about half an hour of our time to break down what good leadership is, what good CEOs are doing in these crazy times. You know, when we recorded, it was in the midst of everything that's going on with coronavirus around the world. So of course we wanted to dive in and identify what leaders can do and how can you be a good leader, what to look out for, how to optimize and improve your leadership skills as well. So if you're someone who wants to be a leader within a company or is a leader, a CEO of a company, you won't wanna miss this episode. Without further ado, let's jump into the show. Martin, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Really appreciate it. Great to be here with you, Kim. I'm excited for this one. Now, I always like to start the podcast off with the same question every time, which is if you and I met at a party and we're chatting and we're just interacting back and forward, and I said, Martin, what is it that you actually do? What's your go-to answer? My go-to is pretty simple, Kim. I'm the no bullshit leader. Now, that normally normally gets the conversation going, right? (laughs) I've tried a whole lot of different things over the years, but I think that's the one that actually starts the conversation. And that's the most important thing, right? It's not to impress people, uh, it's to interact with them. I have in the past tried things like when I was running CS Energy, I'm chief executive of a multi-billion dollar energy business, but I could see their faces and they were looking at me as if to say, mate, you're not, you're just a total wanker. The no bullshit leader thing comes from, you know, my 30 year career in corporate, which I've now gone into business with my daughter to actually realize our very modest ambition of improving the quality of leaders globally. So that's where we are with that at the moment. And of course, the No Bullshit Leader comes from our podcast, which is No Bullshit Leadership. So Mm. it all makes sense, right? It starts a conversation and it's always a lot of fun. I love that. And so what's the difference then between a, I'm assuming the opposite of a No Bullshit Leader is a bullshit leader and a No Bullshit Leader. Like what what are some of the characteristics that you've seen over your years that where, you know, like you can be able to cut through with that angle on leadership? Yeah, Kim, it's a great question because I'm not sure that I'd describe it necessarily as being a bullshit leader, as being the antonym of a a no bullshit leader. What I would say, though, is the biggest differentiation we find is that what we do is extraordinarily practical and it's results focused. So I was quite dismayed that over the last probably five to 10 years, the whole discourse on leadership has become about these waffly leadership attributes. You have to be humble, you have to be fallible, you have to be transparent, which is all good stuff, don't get me wrong, and these things are important, but how would you even start to go about becoming those things if you're not already? And so the number one thing that I do is that I anchor leadership back to results. And that's the most important thing because we seem to have lost sight of the fact that the only reason we have leaders is to get outcomes that we can't get otherwise. And so anchoring back to results, then it's about giving the practical tools from my years of experience in large corporate organizations as to how you go about doing that by releasing some of the potential of your people. So how do you 
what sort of measurement do you use for results? Because for example, like we're, we're exactly the same in our company. We run ads for people and everything has to be tracked back to results. No one likes to, to pay for just fluff and feeling good. It's like, oh, our marketing campaigns look amazing. And it's like, yeah, but what results did they, did they yield? So from a leadership perspective, because obviously there's you know, team output, there is growing revenues and whatnot. Are there like a set of criteria that you track for that result increase? There absolutely is. You can track uh, most of these things. What it comes down to ultimately is the creation of value. And the creation of value, people most generally associate with financial value, but value can be created in so many different ways. So if you're, for example, providing healthcare services to a community in regional New South Wales, then value for you might be uh, better outcomes for your clients of your services. And so you can measure those in a number of different ways by I don't know, reduced hospital admissions, reduction in addiction rates of teenagers. I mean, there's a whole range of things you can measure, but it's just creating that really strong link between what the organisation is trying to do, the value that it it delivers to know that it's doing the right thing, and then how the leadership optimises that. Then if you sort of stand back from a more holistic perspective as a chief executive, what you actually want to see over time is a culture where these things are embedded in the culture. And so you can measure cultural shifts with some pretty well-worn tools now. The only difficulty with that is it's a slow burn. You can't measure culture today and then try again in three months because you're not going to see a shift. It's a 12-month to 18-month cycle between those measurements. So you're not getting that immediate instantaneous feedback. For people that are small, medium-sized businesses, maybe they're just trying to lead themselves or, or a small team, are there any, as you mentioned, like what are some of the areas that they should be measuring to see how effective their, their leadership is? I think- Like from a generic standpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a little bit more difficult. When you talk about the effectiveness of an individual leader, one of the greatest measurements is the individual leader's own confidence. How confident are you to navigate the conflict situations that you find yourself in with your people? How confident are you to make rapid decisions in a highly ambiguous environment? It's these sorts of indicators, whereas people's confidence and capability improves, they then start to see results. So a lot of our clients, what we see is, and we have a lot of clients in SMEs, what we see from a lot of our clients is that they will say, I'm making such a difference now because I'm approaching the whole leadership task differently. And because I'm employing these practical tools, I can see the difference it's making in the people in my team in terms of what they're doing and how they're performing. And so some of these things are a little bit more qualitative, a little bit more anecdotal, but still, nonetheless, you see the individuals making a big difference. Being that you've got such an experience in leadership and from, from your background over the, you know, the past 30 years, what have you seen over the last six months or you know three three to six months now when we're recording this in the middle of everything all the corona craziness that's been going on what have you seen that's that you've been like wow that's really effective leadership and has there been anything where you've been like they really should have approached this differently whether it be from from companies or businesses or even the general you know the general public i actually produced a podcast episode maybe six weeks ago or so about leadership through the COVID crisis, but I spoke mainly about political leadership and it was triggered by an article that I read in Forbes magazine about what the great leaders through the COVID pandemic have had in common. I don't subscribe to any of that stuff necessarily because you never know what the individual circumstances are. So one of the points I made in that podcast episode was that New York City and New York State had probably the worst statistics for coronavirus cases 
in the early days when it was coming through the US. They had the highest death rate pretty much of any region and very, very high infection rates. But does that necessarily mean that the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, wasn't leading well? Well, not necessarily. What it means that the state and the infrastructure was woefully unprepared for what was to follow. So it's a little bit difficult to ascribe performance in leadership to some of the outcomes that are coming through. What I would say, though, is that one of the obvious things, Kim, is that a lot of people are hiding under the bed and they're reacting instinctively and they're reacting in a way where they're getting through things and getting things done in a way that's entirely acceptable. But I'm sure in their heart of hearts, they're just hoping beyond hope that everything's going to go back to normal and they can get out from under the pressure. What I'm really interested to see is in 12 months' time, has any of this brought a sustained change to leadership? Is the way people view uncertainty and crisis any different than what it was 12 months ago? I mean, let's face it, no one had crisis plans in their organisation for, gee, what would we do if we couldn't get on a plane and just be somewhere tomorrow? So no one had really prepared for the sorts of things we've seen rolling out since the COVID pandemic hit us. Now, is that something that being that everyone, if they're listening to this, hopefully they are or want to be leaders within their organizations as well. Is that something that now you're recommending for a lot of your clients where it's like, okay, if like, what would you do now? You know, knowing what we know now, go wind the clock back to, you know, January, February, March, what you would do differently, what things you would have in, have in place. And is that sort of something that you get them to, you know, like theoretically scenario, I don't want to say scenario rise, but go through that scenario and put those plans in place in their business now? Or what, what's the sort of feedback your, uh, your clients that you're giving to your clients at the moment? I think scenario planning is very important, Kim. And a lot of organizations that I know do it. In smaller organizations, not so much. You don't have the resources to go through those sorts of scenario options. I mean, I remember a large organization I worked in, we had a team of McKinsey consultants come in and play war games with us, which was an extraordinarily expensive, but also an extraordinarily valuable exercise. But most organizations don't have the resources to go to that length. What I would say is that most of my clients don't need any guidance from me about the fact that they were left short. Most of them actually know that. They know the problems they've had. And through that experience, they're going to really, really gain and grow so that for their context, they can put in place some measures that let them see the milestones coming ahead and react differently in the future. So I think that's an entirely positive thing. Just in terms of people's ability to withstand these shocks, I think there's a whole lot of work that we do in leadership around navigating ambiguity. And the ambiguity that we find ourselves in now is extreme, as, as we all know. It's a very obvious statement, I know. But getting people to think through how they do that and to turn ambiguity and uncertainty into competitive advantage, that's really where leadership comes into its own. So if you can make bold and decisive moves with really good decisions in times of high ambiguity, that is incredibly valuable because if you're struggling with it, all of your competitors are struggling with it as well. The ones who win in a market are the ones who as leaders can make bold, decisive moves, understanding all of the risks and turn that into value. How do you train yourself to be able to do that because i know that you know some of the thoughts i th or i think i know that some of the thoughts will be going through the listeners heads as they're going like i, I understand what, what you've just said and it sounds good to me but how do i get better at doing that you know without having to be chucked into a, a global pandemic crisis to test my grit with that what's the sort of processes or or testing or, or practices that people should be using to be able to have that ability if like if all if this all happens again yeah, I'm really glad you asked that, Kim, because that's actually specifically what we do. 
as we provide practical tools for how you would navigate through these situations. So whether it's ambiguity, whether it's conflict, whether it's resilience, whether it's making sure you're working at the right level and not over-functioning for the people who work for you, all of these things have practical tools. And in ambiguity, it's really about understanding what the environment holds in terms of having perspective on it, the speed of decision-making, the ability to work out what's real and what's just noise as you look into that environment and just say, hang on a minute, I've got 100 things in front of me here. Which one's the most important things? And to always reference that back to the right things in terms of your purpose, strategy, and your operating and tactical plans. So there's a really practical method for getting your arms around this stuff and responding. I've listened to a few people's viewpoints on this and it's always interested me, but do you think that anyone can become a leader? Do you think it's a taught trait to be a great leader? Is it a trait that you're born with that then amplifies over time? What's your opinion on that side of things? (laughs) I get asked this all the time and I have a very close colleague who is a psychologist who's done a huge amount of work in organisational psychology. She's a firm believer in the fact that leaders are born, not made. My viewpoint, I think, is probably best described that anyone can improve their leadership capability and confidence. Anyone can. So even if you're not naturally predisposed to being a great leader, if you have certain goals and ambitions and you have certain career path that you want to map out for yourself, you can improve these things. Anyone can improve. Just some people are coming off a lower base, right? Some people fit into these things more naturally. Communication, human interaction, having the emotional intelligence to be able to have these connections, but, you know, strong, difficult conversations with other people. Like these things are easier for some than others, but they're all learnable skills. And so then if people are looking for, let's just say maybe they are a leader, they want to bring leaders onto their team in their businesses, how do you, without being like, rate your leadership skills or like, do you consider yourself a leader? Are there certain questions or probing, probing questions or lines of questioning that you would recommend for people if you're looking to try and identify leaders? Maybe you're doing your annual review with your team, being that it's just you know July when we're doing this or you're trying to bring new talent in. What are some of the identifiers that people should keep their eyes out for? Bringing new talent in is an entirely different proposition to evaluating the people that you have there. You have very little visibility when you bring someone in and the whole recruitment and selection process is fraught. It's it's an imprecise science. So on that particular issue, I'd say bringing people in, don't always believe what you read on a resume, don't always believe what you hear in an interview room, they can easily be gamed. Asking questions at interview is really important to try and sort out the dogs from the fleas. So saying things like, explain to me how you've done this, or please tell me your philosophy on this. Tell me the last time you did this as a leader and asking those questions directed specifically to the leadership skills that you're looking for. You can teach someone anything really. What you can't do and you absolutely can't do is change their value set. So I always try and drill down into that as well because, yeah, if you're smart enough, you'll learn things, but I'm not going to fundamentally change the way you think and behave. So I better make sure that that's consistent before I take you on. But it's also, you know, you can even have that sort of fall foul That's why we have probation periods, I guess, for people that we hire. But one thing that I always add now that I never used to is a psychological and personality profiling. And in my last many years as a corporate executive and CEO, I would not hire someone at a senior level without putting them through a whole battery of aptitude testing, critical thinking skills, personality profile, emotional intelligence, which is so critical. So emotional intelligence testing, and then wrapping all of this together in an integrated report with a professional who can actually say to you, here's how, how likely it is that this person can be successful in the role. 
and once again, not everyone has the resources to do this type of, of testing and process. But if you want to improve the way you hire people to make it more likely that you're going to get great people on board, that's the way to do it. Do you have a go-to personality, like from the personality profiling side of things, do you have a go-to? Is it a, is it a Colby test? Is it what sort of ones that you do you normally recommend or use? There's a lot of different types of testing. I've used a psychologist in Brisbane very, very effectively in the first few years, Frances Avenel, who runs a company called Integrated People Strategies. And she does a holistic suite of tools that pick the best from best of breed from, from different disciplines. And she puts it together in a report that actually gives me a proper analysis and risk profiling of someone that I'm about to hire. She's gold. Wouldn't make a decision without her. And the number of times that I've actually said, hmm, I'm not sure I agree with that and made a decision against her recommendation. I've lived to regret it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the be-all and end-all, Kim. Like, you know, this testing isn't the be-all and end-all. It's just another indicator that helps you to calibrate what you're seeing to increase the likelihood that you're going to make a good hire. There's all these old adages are out. You know, you don't want to have too many chefs in, in the kitchen and all these different sorts of analogies around having one type of person. Do you think for an effective organization, does everyone need to be, in inverted commas, like a leader? Is there differences in where you would not look for people where you're like, I just want someone that would just be able to follow and do these key tasks and that's it. That's all that I'm looking for. Or do you always want someone who has you know, aspirations to become a leader and, and, you know, showcase those leadership skills? Yeah, no, not, not always. That's a good point. Uh, quite often, people just need to be really, really competent technically in a particular function. So you don't need a great leader in, in all the different roles. And there are many, many roles in an organisation that don't require those leadership skills. One thing I will say, hire what you don't have. Now, what most people do is they hire in their own image. They have an interview they sit down opposite someone, and when that person on the opposite side of the table starts to talk about the things that coincide with their own belief system, their own approach, everything else, they're going, wow, this person is awesome. I, I, I've got to hire them. Right? So what you're doing is just duplicating yourself. The most critical thing is to make sure that you have a rounded set of skills, perspectives, experiences, all the things that make uh, bring difference to the table and cover more bases for you. And this is why diversity is so important. Now, there's a whole lot of moral reasons why diversity is important in terms of, you know, gender diversity, you know, sexual preference diversity, cultural diversity, industry diversity. All these things have a really strong moral basis for why they should occur. But in terms of performance, it's being able to get a range of different viewpoints around the table to get those viewpoints out onto the table and to help you make better decisions because you've got better information at hand. So it's always got to lead itself back to the practical application of how do I actually create value with the resources I've been gifted by the organisation and that I'm a steward of. I think from that perspective, hire as many different types of people that you can get together as long as you can make them work in a team. And I've got an expression, it's a lot easier to rein in a stallion than it is to flog a donkey. But working with a team of stallions presents its own challenges and sometimes you know, you spend your time putting out fires between the stallions because they're, they're all rugged individualists who want to, you know, who want to run the show. So there's balance to be had in all of that, I guess. I love that analogy. I'm definitely going to borrow that because that's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's a great one. What's been one of the biggest leadership challenges that you were faced with over your years in the industry of leadership and, and, and prior to it as well? And, and how did you navigate that? I think probably, and I, I mean, there's been specific situations and circumstances I've been in that I've found very, very tough. So I've been on the wrong end of a hostile takeover. 
I've been on the right end of a takeover. I've been through a very large IPO, so a share market listing on the ASX. I've been through downsizing, outsourcing, like you name it. All of those different events have had their varying degrees of difficulty. I think if I step back and think about the things that I found most challenging, and interestingly, I've never shied away from really, really difficult challenges like this. Part of me says, at the moment, running a micro business with Emma on leadership development, part of me just says, I would love to be at the reins of one of Australia's most challenged companies or one of you know, Belgium's most challenged companies and having an opportunity to test myself in managing through this crisis, right? Because that's really where, where a lot of satisfaction comes from, getting through to the other side of that, being able to push yourself and test yourself and really challenge whether you are capable of doing these things. And of course, some of my close colleagues are in that situation right now in different parts of the globe, trying to lead their businesses through this crisis. I'll get back to the point, don't worry, at some stage, Kim. But the things that I found most challenging, it wasn't until probably quite late in my career that I really learned the art of execution. I thought I was fantastic at achieving outcomes through others, but it wasn't until probably the last, I don't know, seven or eight years of my career where I really understood the nexus between taking someone and getting the best out of them individually, making sure that there was a a sufficient amount of support around them, but also being able to very, very closely and carefully look at the outputs that they were producing so that you could satisfy yourself that things were going really well and that you didn't get blindsided by anything. So I was probably always a little hands-off. I prefer much more to be in the context and the strategy than I do in the detail. I'm really good at the detail when I get into it, but it's not what I enjoy doing. And so I would quite often give someone too much rope. And giving someone too much rope can sometimes end in tears. It's fantastic when you've got awesome people and every single individual is driven by their own sense of excellence and drivers. That works really, really well. But on the odd occasion that you haven't got someone who's like that working for you, you can be blindsided pretty badly. And I think most of the mistakes in my career were from giving the wrong people more rope than they were ready to have at that time. I love that. And I think that's uh, such an important one. And I remember, I can't remember who it was, but they mentioned something very similar where it's like you can give people enough rope to be successful. And sometimes it's the rope that actually ends up hanging themselves because they, they weren't ready for that level of responsibility. Like when you look back at that now, is there, were people, those people just not, like, would they eventually get ready or were they really just not like candidates for that sort of role that they are in? A bit of both probably, Kim. I think I've seen situations where people did have the capability fundamentally but just weren't experienced and mature enough to be able to get through the thing that I'd given them, thinking that they could. And don't forget, no one's going to tell you that something's too hard for them when you give them a job. They're always going to say, sure, Marty, I can do that. And then you'll find out over time whether, whether or not they actually can. Other people, of course, have simply not been either bright enough or experienced enough, and I mean that in the most respectful way, to do a job that's overly complex for what you're asking them to do and and sometimes they're tougher to deal with because it's it's okay to say to someone hey look you can get there i'm going to help you get there but we need to do it this way and that's an easy conversation than saying to someone you're not cutting it you'll probably never cut it and i hate to tell you that but you need to look for a role that's more suitable for your skill set and capability and experience so uh, sometimes those conversations are, are pretty hard hitting because they hit at someone's core psyche. But nonetheless, the, they're all conversations that have to be had if you want to be a strong leader. 
I couldn't agree more. I think it was Brian Tracy or someone around a principle of eating the frog, doing the, <laughs> the hardest thing first. And I know for my team, it's like to, for those that are in leadership positions, it's always whenever we have something difficult to deal with, it's like you've got to have those hard conversations. And I find it's like it's much easier to get them out of the way and get them done than to sit there and let them fester. Because I think even as a, even as an effective leader, when you're dealing and managing all those things, if you let everything sit on your shoulders and weigh you down, the, the pressure does build up, right? It's not like you just, it doesn't affect you. It's still there, but you just got to be better at, at managing it and getting through it. Would that be a correct assumption from your side? Oh, absolutely. And look, the whole concept of being a strong leader, it's not about being you know, tough or domineering or aggressive or anything else. It's really about having the strength individually and internally to do those hard yards in a way that is still connected and compassionate and empathetic. And so that's, it's that balance between the caring for the people but also not taking any shit, right? It's, it's you know, you've got to hold people to account for what they're, what they're delivering and that's what you're paid to do. So it's that balance of strength and ability to do that while still caring individually for the person that you're talking to. That's a great point there. Now, as we get towards the end of our time together, I always like to ask the same question to everyone at the end of the podcast, which is, what's the question which I haven't asked you that I should have? <laughs> Do I miss being CEO of a very large organization? <laughs> you, you kind of semi-addressed that a little bit earlier, but uh, yeah, what is it, what's, the, what's the couple of the big differences that you've noticed, obviously now, apart from having, being able to, to be uh, the captain of the ship navigating things, What's a what's few of the things that pop up for you there? Well, I think there's a couple of obvious differences. So the first thing is the impact I can have today in a micro business is so much greater than I could as chief executive of a large business. And this is almost counterintuitive. But as even if I'm chief executive of General Electric, right, with hundreds of thousands of people, how many do I actually impact for the better? You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe 100 200 maybe, and half of those don't even want to be impacted, right? They just want to get off and not be noticed. So, so the amount of impact I can have there is so much less than doing what I'm doing now where our podcast is, you know, in 70 countries and we're reaching people that we never could have reached and tens of thousands of people every week downloading this podcast and getting some of these concepts into them. So uh, that for a start is, is one of the biggest differences. And from that perspective, I do not miss being a corporate CEO one little bit because I'm driven by impact and this just hits my driver right on the button, which is perfect. One of the differences that I did really have to get used to was this concept of not having people to throw stuff at. I'm just not resourced, right? Now, we use you know, the gig economy probably as well as anyone possibly could, right? So we, we love you know, Upwork. We've got some people that work closely with us under contract to do various things that are specialist. But basically, it's me and M putting all of this stuff together. And it took me a little bit of a while to work out that I couldn't just say, hey, look, this might be a little bit of an issue with copyright. Can throw that to the lawyers, get them to get an expert opinion and bring it back to me within a week. Like, you can't do that. You know, we need some financial modelling on this. Could you get the CFO to put a team together to work on this, right? As, as a CEO of a large business, you've got resources everywhere. And using those is fantastic. But to run a smaller business, as you know, Kim, it takes a lot of talent. You've got to be talented and thoughtful and very, very deliberate about where you put your resources and the fact that they do link directly to value generation. So those are the differences. And the reason, of course, I said that was the question I wanted you to ask me to finish was because I knew the answer to it. It's always fun. 
It's always good to have one that lined up where you've yeah, got, that, absolutely. got the answer ready as well. But I think it's so important what you mentioned there about the impact. And it was, you know, similar to myself. I remember there's a book by Paulo Coelho, Warriors of Light, and he talks about being able to teach the teachers. And obviously with what you do as well, you work with CEOs. So you directly you know, work with people as well as obviously indirectly via the podcast. And if you go and influence 10, 20, 50, 100 directly CEOs that then go and put that through their companies, like it's just astronomical, the, the impact that you have. And, and that, that's why we have, we do what we do as well, because, you know, I could go out there and, 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 and speak and educate and just teach directly. But when we can do and help people get their message out to more people, our effect, I like to think of anyway, is multiplied throughout everyone that we work with also. So yeah. I love that that was one of your points there for sure. I'd like to see the sort of geometrical progression on our impact that we're seeing out of the coronavirus pandemic, to be frank. <laughs> That'd be yeah. awesome. Watch that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that we'd, we wouldn't want to flatten that one for sure. No. Now, for anyone that's listening, they go, great. This, I, I am very interested in everything that what, what Marty shared with me and wants to find out more. Where's the best place for people to connect with you online? Obviously, you mentioned the podcast, but is there anywhere else where people should connect and, and find out more about what you do? Yeah, it's all on our website, Kim. So yourceomentor.com. It's spelled as you'd expect, Y-O-U-R-C-E-O-M-E-N-T-O-R.com. All of it's there, links to the podcast, plus, of course, all the other stuff that we do. So uh, our online education program for leadership, Leadership Beyond the Theory, we run two cohorts a year and we're just going to start one in September coming up. So we're really excited about getting another cohort away in that. And that's really about, you know, how do I get the practical tools to give me the leadership confidence and capability straight away, right now? Like, how do I do something today that makes a difference? So we're having huge success with that and having such an impact with the results of it. So we're really, really excited about the next one. Awesome. So guys, if you want to find all that out, wherever you are, you either click above and click on into the show notes and we'll be at, have all those links there so that you can connect with Marty as well. And if you know anyone that wants to improve their leadership, maybe they've struggled or they've succeeded even in, in the most recent few months, make sure that you share this podcast. Think of two or three people, whether they be CEOs or leaders in organizations and share this podcast with them so they can hear some of Marty's insights there and, and hopefully be able to help them out and then get them growing on their leadership journey. And of course, make sure you leave us a review and let us know what you thought of this episode, if you liked it and uh, what your favorite takeaway was as well. Once again, Marty, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you making the time. Absolute pleasure, Kim. Thanks, mate. Cheers.